Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn with Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly with Rocco, River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time we're talking about Richard Strauss's Capriccio, Eric, which debuted in Munich in 1942. His very last opera, in fact. And he also collaborated on the libretto with Clemens Krauss. Yeah, famed conductor, no less. And this is this is Richard Strauss in his neoclassical mode, which is distinct from his post-Wagnerian mode. Um, in Post-Wagnerian, you think Elektra, and you think Zalame, and you think Die Frau und Schatten. Uh, this is more like Arabella and Der Rosenkavalier in, in terms of style and musical composition. And in fact, there are similarities in some respects to Der Rosenkavalier and Ariadne, Ariadne of Naxos as well. Capriccio is set in... Uh, 1775, in a chateau outside of Paris. Right. And there is a countess who is widowed, and her brother, the count. And it's about to be her birthday, and she has two suitors. Mm -hmm. Flamand, who is a composer, and Olivier, who is a poet, and... There's the rub. <laughs> there is indeed the rub. I mean, this opera is basically a musical debate about opera because it really is – this is an opera about opera. And it's about which is more important, words or music. There's the old saw in opera, you know, prima la musica e dopo le parole. Music comes first and then the words you know, are secondary. But this, this opera is basically questioning that, you know, well, is it really? Is it really is music more important or, or is it the words that are more important? And, you know, these characters basically debate this in one, one form or another through the course of this entire opera. And, you know, the whole business of, of the Countess being courted by this poet and this composer, you know, and asking, you know, which does she choose? is allegorical, you know, which does she think is more important, the words or the music? And that's the thrust of the opera, is that she is going to sort of adjudicate and come to the sort of the authoritative decision as to which is more important, words or music. Right. And she tells both Flamand and Olivier that she will give them her answer at 11 o'clock the next morning in the library. Right. Sounds like clue, doesn't it? Right. The countess in the library with the poet. Or the countess in the library... With a candlestick. <laughs> <laughs> and we should point out that this opera is just one act. It was supposed to be a, a really short little one actor, and Strauss got into, got into his, uh, you know, more uh, effulgent mode and, and just kind of dragged it out until it's about two and a half hours long with no intermission, which, you know, when you really think about it, I mean, that's a, an average length movie, basically, a little over average length. But there are opera companies who will take an intermission um, partway through after the Countess tells Flamand that she will give him her decision on which she thinks is more important, words or music, in the library tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. And then she orders... Without a candlestick. Without the candlestick. <laughs> she orders chocolate. And that's the, uh, the point curtain at falls. which the curtain falls. But um, it's not unprecedented, though, to do an opera one act. I mean, Wagner, The Flying Dutchman, is most often done in one 
act straight through, and it's about that long. Mm-hmm. Same with Das Rheingold and, and Rheingold. The Flying Dutchman, sometimes they will chop it up into three acts. Rheingold is never divided up. It's always done just in one straight act through. and uh, That's yeah. a long act. Yeah, it is. What we have here as well is it's not just this straight decision between words or music. The whole plot is rendered more complex by the character La Roche, who is a theater director. Mm-hmm. And he brings in that element of, well, it's not just the music or the words. There's it's all the other stuff as well. Stagecraft. Sometimes dance is introduced. Yes, exactly. Costumes, uh, all the lighting, all of that, all goes into what opera ultimately becomes. And another of the characters is Clairon, who is an actress. an actress. And presumably, according to La Roche, she would be as essential to the overall production as the words or the music, because you have to have interpreters. Interpreters, exactly. Now, the Countess's brother, the Count, is there as well, and he has his eye on Clairon. Right, and so he's sort of leaning toward the words because he's in love with an actress who doesn't work in musical theater, so he's he's a little biased. And in fact, he says that he has no time for opera. He does not like opera. Well, nuts to him. <laughs> but the conceit is that they are going to produce this play in celebration of the Countess's birthday right? the next day. And Laroche is going to direct. And he has put together a play in two parts. The first part is titled The Birth of Pallas Athena. And then the second part is The Fall of Carthage. And he obviously has this sense of spectacle because The Fall of Carthage is not a little intimate thing that happens in your living room. No. (laughs) That's rather epic, grand-scale, French grand opera-type stuff. The opera opens with this string sextet, which functions, in essence, as the overture to the opera. But then it turns out that is a piece of music that Flamand has written for the Countess. And he hopes to win her affections with the music. Olivier has written this play. And when Clairon, the actress, arrives, she and the Count, because the Count is going to to act in the play, Mm -hmm. they recite this love sonnet. And then they leave, because they're all going off for rehearsal with La Roche. And Olivier takes the opportunity to tell the Countess that he meant that sonnet for her. Ooh. (laughs) Flamand has gone off to set the sonnet to music. I guess this is the sort of one-upmanship. You're right. And while Flamand is away working on the music, Olivier declares his love for the Countess. Flamand comes back and he sings the sonnet that he has set to music. He sits down at the harpsichord 
and he uh, works his magic. Olivier leaves, and Flamand takes the opportunity of telling the Countess how much he loves her, <laughs> pressing right. his suit. Right. And that's when she says, meet me in the library tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, and I will give you my answer. Right. Words or music, Olivier or Flamand. Hmm. Both the Count and the Countess, though, know what's going on. The Count is looking for Clairon, mm -hmm. and the Countess is having to decide between... Olivier and Flamand. Olivier and Flamand. Right. When the actors and La Roche return from their rehearsal, we get these other elements that are thrown in because La Roche has dancers and singers come in to entertain the guests. Right. And so you have, again, that stagecraft. It's not just the words and the music. It's the actors, it's the dancers, it's the singers. And isn't it, isn't it La Roche that expresses a preference for Italian opera and he brings in two Italian singers and uh, because he just likes the, the whole fusion of, uh, of opera in the, in the Italian style, the way it's all fused together, it's all one. What La Roche drives at, though, is this idea that you have to reach the heart you have to touch emotionally the audience in order for any artwork to succeed. Right. And that it's that fusion of all those elements, the music, the makeup, the scenery, the <laughs> whatever it is. There's no business like show business. <laughs> but it's that idea that it's all these different elements together that will touch the audience. And he says that what everybody should be forging toward is masterworks that will reveal people in all their complexity. Uh-huh. In other words, that, that, that humanity, but not a stereotypical, something that is nuanced. Something like what Wagner was talking about with his Gesamtkunstwerk, the total unification of all the elements of opera, the theater, the words, the music, everything. Then we have this comic scene where the guests all leave and the servants come in to clean up the room. And they have this comment about how absurd it would be to portray servants in an opera. <laughs> and they sing that soon everybody will be an actor. Which is, you know, which is ironic considering, I mean... Marriage Major of Figaro, Figaro Barbara, Barbara of Seville, <laughs> Cosi Fantute, Don Giovanni. Uh, I mean, every, yeah, <laughs> it's absurd. Later that evening, the Countess returns from dinner and she is still undecided as to how she feels. Is it words? Is it music? And she knows, of course, that she's told them she'll give them her answer at 11 o'clock the next morning in the library. And she has this big aria. Kind of a monologue, you know, very Straussian monologue. I mean, at the end of which, she can't choose. She can't make the choose. She's, and she says, you know, whichever choice I make, it's going to seem trivial. But the thing is, this scene, this scene for the solo soprano is, is the crowning jewel of this opera. This is what everyone waits for. It's often excerpted. 
Uh, Renee Fleming has had great success with it and has recorded it. And it's vintage Strauss. It's Strauss at his absolute best. And as we've seen time and again, especially with Strauss in his neoclassical mode, he loved the female voice. And he oh, yes. loved the soprano voice and loved to just send it soaring in these long, arching phrases. And this is no different. I mean, he gives the soprano a tour de force to end the opera. And in so doing, in a way... Proves his point. Proves his point. Yeah, exactly. Because there is that appeal to the emotions. Oh, boy. Yes. And there is music. Yes. And there are words. And they're inextricably intertwined. And then the major domo comes in and says, dinner is served. End of opera. End of opera. (laughs) (laughs) What is interesting here, though, is that whole idea of the opera within the opera. Uh Uh-huh. And as you said, Capriccio is a contemplation on the nature of opera. Yeah, as such, I mean, sometimes it's criticized for being a little bit too academic through much of of its two and a half hours. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it's Strauss sort of at the peak of his powers and able to deliver very complex ideas and thoughts and, and all in a theatrical manner through the setting of music and, and words. And then at the end, of course, he gives in to his, his predilection for soaring Straussian melody and, and just sort of gives everybody what they've been waiting for all evening. So that final 15, 20 minutes are, you know, they're the reward. The apotheosis. They are. And we have the same sort of debate in some respects that we get in Ariadna of Naxos. Mm. There you have the distinction between the composer, the sort of high art, The highbrow, the low versus uh, lowbrow. And the lowbrow actors, uh, where here the debate is slightly different, and that is words or music. Uh-huh. But it's still concerned with the nature of opera, the nature of theater, the nature of spectacle. Right. Richard Strauss's Capriccio. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.